Incomparable Podcast by S. Morgenstern. Page 1. Number 25. For February 2011. I would like to tell you a story based on a film based on a book that's based on another book that didn't ever actually exist the topic today is the princess bride a fine film from the 1980s a good decade uh directed by rob reiner a uh, a movie that was a minor success i suppose at the time and yet has become one of the most quoted and i think beloved cult if it can even be called a cult film anymore so much to talk about Joining me today to discuss this beloved film are Serenity Caldwell. Hi, Jason. Glenn Fleischman. Howdy. Greg Noss. Hello, Jason. And Dan Morin. Hi, Jason. Thanks for coming back. It's been a while. It has. So, uh, The Princess Bride, a movie that I don't think I ever saw in the theater. I was alive when it was in the theater, which puts me up on some people. Um, ooh. Yeah, that's okay. But but I didn't see it either. I did, I saw it on home video, and I, I was wondering what everybody was quoting. I didn't understand any of the quotes when people were quoting things in college. I had no idea. And then I saw The Princess Bride and went, wow, those are all from one movie? And I think we're going to need to establish the ground rule that the first person who kind of unintentionally, spasmodically quotes the movie loses. Or do they win? No, they lose. They lose the game. Points for style. Okay. Okay, so you've got to go this entire podcast without making a reference to The Princess Bride. I don't think that's going to work. That's inconceivable. In fact, oh, no. <laughs> I was going to say never go in against a Sicilian when death is on the line. It's only mostly wow. inconceivable. Now this podcast is over. Yes. So uh, first thing I wanted to talk about about The Princess Bride is uh, to begin at the beginning and talk about the framing sequence. Because one of the interesting things about this movie is that it is um, – it is a once upon a time kind of fairy tale and it is told as a story by a grandfather to his grandson. And so we've got these scenes at the beginning end and a couple places in the middle, not too much. They don't, they don't overdo it where you've got, where you've got young Fred Savage, young before the wonder years, even young Fred Savage and uh, old Peter Falk before he goes really, really old Peter Falk, uh, but still old and a little bit scary. And uh, Fred Savage is in his room with his Chicago Bears stuff on, and he's playing, uh, I think it's Micro League Baseball on, like, a Commodore 64. And, uh, and, then, we, and then he tells, uh, Peter Falk tells him the story of The Princess Bride by S. Morgenstern. And, uh, and then, you know, he interjects at a few points, and then at the end, um, there, it, it's spoiler alert, <laughs> um, he finishes the story at the end. And uh, and it's kind of heartwarming, but I, I, it's interesting that they chose to do this. I mean, I mean, the um, it's based on a book. The book itself has its own framing sequence, which is a little bit different. And how would you adapt that? But it is charming. Although every time I put in the movie, I'm I'm um, shocked because the the main part of the story is so timeless, and yet the framing sequence is so so very eighties. It's the uh, I read the original book. I think I read it. A librarian in high school suggested it to me, and I don't think she told me that it was a parody. And I think I was. Just naive enough that when I read it, I thought it was, I, I didn't know who um, William Goldman was. And so I started reading it. And I, I'm, you know, I should have even at that point known because I was I'd like film. And uh, I was like, man, this is sort of bizarre. And wow, I guess the original book would have been really boring. And then after a while, I'm like, oh, okay, I get it now. I think I should have seen that already. But yeah, okay. Right, because he's talking about how he's adapted it from the original from S. Morgenstern. And there are lots of uh, footnotes and strange yeah, it, things like that. He, he took out a 40-page sequence describing the Florian 
royalty and how they dress. It was an elaborate parody that S. Morgenstern had written that he didn't think modern audiences were into. And that's, <laughs> it's like half a paragraph, and he just blows by it, and you think, wow. It was written so colloquially, it actually read a little bit like nonfiction until it starts getting, you know, until you get to rodents of unusual size and some other obvious giveaways. But it, it seemed like he was reinterpreting a story. It's like someone had found Tolkien, Lord of the Rings, and turned it into a hundred-page breezy tale about a guy who has to throw a ring away. Well, I think if you look at the actual like circumstances that arose in the in in Goldman's writing of the story, which is to say, I believe he has two daughters, and he asked them one night, um, "What do you want to hear a story about before you go to bed?" And one of them said, "A princess," and the other one said, "A bride." So he combined them basically to create this, and so it has a very it has a very bedtime story quality, right? Like it veers off in strange directions, like as though it is all being invented on the spot in some ways. Or as if you drop off momentarily, you wake up and the plot is really remarkably different because you were you missed a piece of it. And very colloquial, like you know, like sort of a dry humor of a you know someone telling a story that is set in grounded in a particular time, but is telling it from the perspective of a time that, like like Jason said, like you know, the framing story is very narrow and anchored in the '80s, and so it has a very the whole thing has a very anachronistic style to it, right? Like the the way people talk for a lot of it, and the the jokes and and references are all well, like Billy Crystal's character is is exactly know, such exactly. a random you know random voice that the miracle that the miracle Max and Valerie his wife do it's 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 you even know, Miracle Max and Valerie right like yeah, those don't oh, yeah. quite seem to fit in a in the in the world of the story but they do because nothing quite fits. When I first saw the movie, um, I thought they just didn't fit at all. It seemed just just leaden to me. And then I read the book, and they're in the book exactly the same way. They're described as elderly Jews in the book. And, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, this was, this was from a time like before Europe was invented, is the quote that he uses. <laughs> and then his copy editor, he says, he says in the notes that his copy editor, in the notes within the book, that his copy editor said, how, can, how is that even possible before Europe is invented? What does that mean? And so his invented copy editor, he says, that's the first time they've gotten emotional with me in the margins. <laughs> and the the book is an astonishingly faithful adaptation. He leaves out very, very little in his screenplay. And everything proceeds exactly as it, it's he got exactly what he wanted. And Goldman wrote the screenplay, too, right? Yeah. I noticed in watching it, there actually are some editing and continuity errors. Like, the movie is a little sloppier than I remember. Um no, no mics come down into this into the scene, but they really uh, it's 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 choppy at points, and I'm not sure that's intentional to follow the book story or because they just kind of you know they whipped it out. This has not gotten a uh, you know 25 year golden deluxe reissue anniversary uh, set yet. Well, that's think. actually not true because I own this right? I own this movie on DVD twice already, really? and one of them is the anniversary edition, and it does have. Um, some extras and stuff that the original, and I think the print is a little bit better. Is the print remastered? That would be my only question. Yeah, it, it still doesn't look that great. I mean, this is a movie that, that is deserving of a real um, remastering yeah. treatment, although I don't know how they shot it and how good the quality of the master is. But um, but they did do something like that, and they added a commentary mm. track and some interviews. I, and I've actually like seen this in, in 35-millimeter film at our at our college campus movie theater when I was when I was an undergrad. Um, and the print was was terrible, and of course, <laughs> but I mean, you know, you go. It was at midnight, and everybody went there, and of course, everybody is quoting along, um, and so it didn't really matter if it was a terrible print or not. It was still a great experience. The Rocky Horror of fantasy movies. It kind of reminded me of Lady Hawk. Uh, I just rewatched it in. Pre- I know it sounds weird. in preparation for this podcast. Though, I just rewatched it. You watched. You watched Lady Hawk in preparation for this podcast. No, but I have. I have seen part of it recently. I love Lady Hawk. It's one of my favorite films from that time. I was trying to think of other movies that are like this, and the only thing I could come up with was Stardust. 
it's kind of a self-conscious adventure parody homage. I think Princess Bride's the breast of them, but why don't they make more movies like this? I think this is a terrific movie and a terrific template. It's, it's been years since I've seen it, but what about like Time Bandits? It kind of reminds me of that, too. You're right about Stardust, though. Stardust is a really good example um, and a movie I liked and did have a little bit of that vibe. Time Bandits had too much farce in it, I think, and puppets. The um... <laughs> Farce and puppets. Farce and puppets is the downfall of uh, <laughs> of my career, probably. That's my new uh, uh, hot pie store. It's going to be called Farce and Puppets. That's my autobiography. <laughs> the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus also had kind of a feel to it. Anybody saw that. Ooh. Very few people did. Four, four, four people saw there are, it. There are, there are ter- Terry Gilliam, you know, has Terry kind Gilliam, of yeah. elements of this, but are, I think are maybe a little too... Have the heart is a little too black. Yeah, he goes he goes a little dark with his. He's a little too weird too, little too weird. Well, watching the movie again reminded me of all kinds of things I had forgotten about from that era. Among other things, that Carrie Elwes is an incredibly funny physical actor, which I you know I guess and I've seen him in plenty of stuff since. But he's sometimes he's a stiff, sometimes he's full of himself, sometimes he's not really acting, and he is. Got a straight face to this whole thing and is just incredibly funny to watch. Carrie Ells was one of those people that I followed somewhat obsessively through middle school and high school, even though his career was pretty much at a dead end at that point. It's like er, mid-90s, mid early 2000s. He wasn't doing much, but I... Like when he was the impediment agent on the X-Files? That's <laughs> yes. when I, 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 I saw that and I thought, really? You're the guy who, you know, because there's always going to be the guy in the suit who's from the bad part of the government who says, oh, I can't <laughs> let you do that, Mulder. You're, you're looking at things you shouldn't look at. And uh, Carrie Elwes, really? It's yeah. come to this? You've saw to this oh. point i i was actually really excited i ended up for god knows what reason seeing ella enchanted the movie version which the book version the book of ella enchanted is quite a wonderful young adult novel and the movie is completely terrible but carrie ells is in it playing you know kind of a kind of the um the count character in princess bride for ella enchanted and it's a very it's it's kind of wonderful he has a snake and i'm like oh finally you're doing something that's not saw or small tv parts even if it is a terrible movie can can we come to some consensus on his last name e l w e s l l i always yeah i always said l's but i guess elwes i'm consulting wikipedia which does not have a pronunciation carrie elvis elwes is it like welsh or something it could be something like that elvish Mm-hmm. Elvish carry. El- Why is he not in Lord of the Rings? A little too Elvish. It, I guess that's true. Oh, so, so he's opposite. Um, he's opposite. A very young Robin Wright. Robin Wright. Yes. Um, very yes, very young. I, I would like to claim credit for knowing Robin Wright before anybody else, because Ooh. in high school I would come home every day and plop down in front of Santa Barbara, the, <laughs> the Four Seasons soap opera. Is this something you want to admit, Greg? It was really? awesome. Sure? I was. It, I had. I have never given myself up to anything even remotely like that before or since. And it had a Martinez. It had a Martinez. Robin Wright. It had not the Martinez. A Martinez. <laughs> a Martinez. <laughs> One of the many, many Martinezes. Uh, it was very enjoyable. And then Robin Wright goes off to an actual career. And I think she's sorry you mentioned Santa Barbara. <laughs> <laughs> That's where all the um, you know hot it girls come from is whatever i happen to be watching mm-hmm. i'm just i'm just gonna put it i happen to have carrie elwes's wikipedia page open since we were trying to figure out his name and um i scrolled down to his credits and i gotta say i, I absolutely love that his credits include include tv credits include such wonderful things as pinky in the brain yay um not and the x-files as jason mentioned um but most recently um among two of his roles are uh the young pope john paul ii <laughs> <Wow>. um, <laughs> 
the adventuresome Pope John Paul II. Some some sort of you know villain or you know presumably probably killer. a villain in on Law and, Law and Order SVU and Ted Bundy. So oh, I think his career is clearly actually I'm gonna I'm gonna put in a brief plug, which is to say he did uh, he had a small recurring role uh, guest role on Psych in the last couple seasons as a uh, like a jewel thief. Um, and he was actually really, really great. He's still working. Hey, what he's can you say? He's very charming. He's, he's still, got the charm. He's still working. And a good... There are Michael Caines out there who take what comes because that's how they pay the bills. That's right. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with that. And, and uh, of course, Robin Wright has gone on to be in many, many things. But here she was, uh, you know, she's she's the princess. She's... She was introduced with this movie. That was her credit. That was the first time I'd seen an introducing the introducing credit since, like, you know, the 30s. It's the ingenue. It's a throwback. I really mm-hmm. loved that. Yeah, she really did about – she did practically no acting in the entire thing. So that's that's <laughs> well, part she, of the she, introducing. She we just need to look at you throughout this film. Put on a fake accent. That's true. Sort of. But it's true. I mean, that's the traditional role. You introduce the actress in order that we may view her through the mm-hmm. film. Later, she may be allowed to act. But in this, in the introduction, you must just observe her. I don't know. I love her delivery of the line, The uh, which is it, the one that most likely kill myself in the morning. Or the – no, the, um, I'm going to go to my – lock myself in my room. And oh shoot, I've lost the line. See, I'm gonna killed, win the I'm gonna win yeah. the award for for, for not for botching, a, for botching a princess bride. <laughs> Where she line. tells the king that she's gonna she's gonna kill himself, kill herself, and he says, "Well, would that be nice?" Be- yes, before the wedding. She kissed yeah. me. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. I I love that. I liked her delivery there. It sounds kind of despondent but uplifting at the same time. Well, and also the the ever so popular. Oh my sweet Wesley, what have I done? So and, he just runs it all together. So, um, the structure of this movie is very strange, as as mentioned earlier. We start with um, an extended chase, essentially. There's the prologue, right? There's a framing sequence, and then there's the prologue with uh, the buttercup and the farmhand, and yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a kissing book. But then there's the chase (laughs) scene, which is where we get to meet our, um, not heroes, our anti-heroes, but they are our heroes, or at least two of them are. Become our mercenaries, (laughs) and they're presented very very comfortably in their mercenary role, but they all have hearts of gold. Vizzini. One. Fezzik and Inigo Montoya, played by Mandy Patinkin, Andre the Giant, and Wallace Shawn, man of letters, and also um, the man <laughs> you don't want to go in with death on with the Sicilian something. Oh, no, right. you never go in against a Sicilian. When, when death, death is, is on the line. line. There we Thank go. you. I, I got to throw out, though, one thing, Jason, because you just you just like tweaked like, something in my head that made me make a connection I'd never made That's before. That's what I'm here the, for. The chase scene. Um, is is very analogous to the chase scene from another William Goldman film, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, oh. where you have the people running away, and then there's the the follower, the people who are just sort of doggedly following them and never quite get shaken off the trail. But I just found huh. that interesting because there's definitely an echo in both those movies, mm. both great movies, and William Goldman is a tremendous writer. Um, but I thought it was funny that it suddenly reminded me of that because you, you see him in the distance, right? He's following them in the boat, and then he climbs up the cliffs and everything. It's nothing. It's a I, very I, similar scene. I just think that there's something there. Inconceivable. But so, so we begin. You know, they, they, they kidnap her. They take her to the boat. They go across. They're the screaming eels. You know, they, they, there's the boat in the distance, and we see him. And so we've met our three characters, and they've kidnapped the, the, the girl, and, and they go to the cliffs of insanity. All right. Do, do it with a lisp, Jason. The cliffs of insanity. <laughs> the, they, Andre the Giant is so powerful that he just basically pulls them up on a on a rope <laughs> with like three people hanging off of him. I love that. And faster, faster, Vizini demands. Was going faster. 
The poor, poor Andre the Giant. And then we have this interesting st- structure where once they get to the top of the cliffs, we all split up in true Scooby-Doo fashion so that each character can meet the man in black individually instead of as a group where they might just kill the man in black and be done with it. So well, they have to deliver each of their backstories as well. But of course. Right. So that, it's, a, it's this great structure in, in the middle of the chase where we now unspool these characters one by one and we meet Inigo Montoya and there isn't just a sword fight. Inigo Montoya gets to tell him the whole story. Um, so Inigo Montoya um, has got to be the, the most quoted character in this movie, right? Uh, you know, He has great quotes. Well, I mean, but he has one quote, quote, which is time after time. And, of course, it's repeated, right, many times in the movie because he sort of talks about – he tells the whole story. Of the six-fingered man? Mm -hmm. Of the six-fingered man killing his father. I I thought – but I like the other one. I actually was able to insert into a Fortune magazine article in 1999 about Windows XP that word you use. It does not mean what you think it means. Yeah, Inigo's got got a lot of of lines. Little zingerness. So, so Inigo Montoya, obviously, uh, you killed my father. Prepare to die, um, and it is it obviously with, with passion, Jason. That's going to really happen. sell it. I am not an actor. I am quoting. I am. I am but the host. Uh, our players would like if they would like to act out the parts. We could do a little <laughs> staging. We could just sit here for the next ninety minutes and reenact the entire Princess Bride. <laughs> so my, a friend of mine actually did this recently. He was at a party where it, it came up that at least a couple of people there had not seen the Princess Bride. And he determined he could pretty much do the entire movie from memory. So he fed lines to a bunch of them, and they reenacted the entire thing. <laughs> and someone videotaped it, and I'm like, please get me a copy of this because I think this would be awesome. Kind of awesome. It's the one-man show of The Princess Bride. So, so um, Inigo Montoya, I love the sword fight. Great sword fight. Mm-hmm. Um, my wife is a, uh, is a former fencer, and uh, she was amused by the fact that um, they fence with swords that um, – would not you couldn't do that kind of fencing with swords like that so they're obviously very light swords but um it's a very exciting scene and the um when they're talking during the uh the sword fight about the different uh methods that they're using you know if i you must respond with capoeira that sort of thing those are all actual names mm-hmm. of fencing mo- moves um and uh that actually that sword fight has one of my favorite lines uh which is if he has considered his agrippa which i have See, I don't know what it is about this movie that, which I have. It's lighthearted. It has, it, it's witty in a in a way. Every that most, scene has yeah. has had that infused in it, and it's like it's a sword fight. No, no, no. It's not just. It is a sword fight, and it's a pretty good sword fight, and it's actually two because there's the left-handed sword fight, and then there's the <laughs> right-handed sword fight, <laughs> separated by gymnastics. Yes, yes, yes the, the 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 high bar. <laughs> uh, sidebar, Jim Cotta. Anyone seen Jim Cotta, a movie of just a few years older than this one? No. I'm not sure any human Nobody. being has seen it. it was I've an seen Olympic it. Metal. What's that? I've seen it. Greg's seen every movie ever. He's in this town, and they're all rushing at him. And at the end of the movie, and he runs into the center of town, and there just happens to be a, a, a gym horse there. And so he can use his Jim Cotta skills to spin his legs around and beat the people off. That came out wrong. It's a combination of, of gymnastics and some other thing. It's a gymnastic martial art. So, like, it's like the gun kata from Equilibrium, another great movie. (laughs) It's the miraculous appearance of specific gymnastic equipment within the context of the action that that resonates with Princess Bride. Yes. Why is there a a a high bar in the middle of the ruins of the uh, whatever it is on the top of the cliff? Just great set. I was admiring that yesterday. That it was such a great set. 
really is. It's funny, when I was doing stage combat my very first year of high school, because I went to an arts high school, uh, we I took fencing, and we actually ran through this scene, among a couple of other very different film scenes, in order to get a grip of certain techniques, and to get taught certain techniques, which was hilarious. It's just like, okay, yes, I'm going to go after school and reenact a, cr a princess bride scene, or a scene from The Matrix, or something like that. That was some high school. It was pretty great. I mean, if you're doing the Matrix. Yes. Hey, I got to I got to choreograph the Burly Brawl, so that was pretty great. None of them went to college, and they shut down the school and decertified it, and fired all the teachers. There's a great moment scattered as gems like little jewels chained throughout this movie. One of the reasons I think it's an enduring film that's enjoyable to watch is that it's got ridiculously low farce and stupid crap in it. I mean, you know, I should say it's actually pretty highbrow. There are no crap jokes. There's like, no, it's the Middle Ages or whatever, 1800s or whatever it's supposed to be, and they're not stepping in manure, you know, so it's not a Mel Brooks movie. We know that. I, I was about to say, it, uh, they didn't take the Mel Brooks path, mm. other than the fact that the Miracle Max, the Miracle Max would be the Mel Brooks part, except he's yes. not being played by Mel Brooks. Yeah, Billy Crystal is seemingly low-key by comparison to how Mel Brooks would have played that. But the uh, but, so the little gems strung throughout the film are these deeply serious moments that resonate well above the farce. So I was watching last night, and I, I remembered the scene in my head, but seeing it, he's Carrie Elwes is making his way up the cliffs of insanity. Uh, Manny Patankin's waiting from there. He's like, you know, I'd go faster if I threw down a rope. But, you know, I don't know. What do you trust me? No. I give you my What could I my say? My word is a Spaniard. Uh, Spaniard. Yeah. I've known too many Spaniards. Ha ha. And then he says, I swear on the soul of my father, Domingo Antoyas, you will not fall. And it's like, we're in a different film. And he mm -hmm. says, throw All right. rope. And you just, just that <laughs> little, you get like 10 seconds, 15 seconds of this beautiful moment that is completely genuine. And then we're back to silly stuff. And it, it, but The same thing when he confronts the six-figured man, when he confronts the count. You know, he gives a really, really effective speech about, you know, I've been searching my whole life. And, and you know, and he finally, he, he gives it low-key, really intensely. You killed my father, prepare to die. And Christopher Guest looks at him and then turns and runs away. You go from <laughs> one of the great timing, one of the great little pieces of timing. Well, in the end, when he gets to to Count Rugen, he, um, you know, he gives a very impassioned speech. It is the speech that he's been waiting to give his whole life. And it's not a joke. It's, it, it, you know, he he wants him to beg for his life. And then he's going to say, I want my father back, you son of a bitch. And he's going to kill him. And and he does. And it's not played for laughs. And it shouldn't be. I mean, there there are some moments of real um, realism, uh, you know, some seriousness Intensity. amid the silliness. Well, I think the one thing that I really love about this film is that no line is really thrown away. You know, in, in other mm. films you can have, there's, you know, there are scenes, there are lines that it's obvious that the screenwriter either wasn't really paying attention or it wasn't really that, it's not really that important, it's just there to advance a story. But every single scene and every single line in this movie is designed for several purposes. And that's what kind of captures the imagination so much. Totally there are, right. Yeah, there are so many great, just like, and I think of other moments, I was just flipping through a list of quotes, refresh my memory, but I love the scene, you know, right before we, we unmask the Dread Pirate Roberts, the man in black, where he says, he has that wonderful, life is pain, Highness. Anyone who sells, says differently is selling, selling something, something. <laughs> which is, which is another, like another sort of anachronistic yes. line, right? But beautiful, what a great line. What what strikes me about this movie is is it's the writing that makes it what it is inside the nerd canon. I mean, it's it's kind of oddball for the way movies that nerds enjoy because there's no sequels and there's not much investment in the world. I don't know of a lot of Princess Bride fanfic. Um, 
Oh God. But I don't I don't know of any cosplay. I don't know of any conventions. But everybody I know loves this movie and can quote it like crazy. And it has to be because of the writing. It's a fairy tale too, right? Like there's an aspect to that that it seems more like a timeless fairy tale story than even like a a beloved movie, right? In some ways, you don't tampering with it would be would be wrong. You know, taking it to any of those places would be disturbing. It's pure. It's it's magic and fun at its most pure. It's not a you know you don't. It's not something that you can taint in any way. But the mark, market forces taint things like crazy. Greg, Greg, <laughs> I'll send you my my manuscript of about the um, about the. Uh, the Gilder uh, royal family and the machinations that they go through in their uh, attempts to uh, according to uh, Goldman, I read something it's with great. him before the sh- before the show uh, from Goldman, which said that he had actually tried to write a sequel, um, but he said I got I got pissed at myself because I would stand I would sit there looking at a blank page I just couldn't think of anything to write. There's another S. Morgenstern book called The Silent Gondoliers, but it, it's not the Florin universe. <laughs> right, it's, and did even did I, doesn't it seem odd even that I said that the Florin universe? You can talk about Star Trek, Star Wars. <laughs> I, I believe the accepted term is the Floriverse, uh, uh, Floor Gildiverse. It just seems wrong. It's the um, you know, it's the the never ending story, part two. Like that's mm. that would be the problem here, <laughs> right? I mean, that was a problem. That was a problem. So, so I want to I want to get back to um. What little structure this podcast has, which is I'm sort of walking through part of, part of the of the structure of the movie. Um, we we left Inigo Montoya knocked out because it would be a, a, an awful waste of material to leave this poor uh, swordsman dead, and move on. The Man in Black then moves on um, to the uh, to the next bit of peril, which is Fezzik the Giant, played by wrestler wrestling Hall of Famer. I'll I'll point out Andre the Giant, who didn't speak English basically at all, and apparently was given his lines by somebody off screen before he would shoot the scene so that he would, no. yeah, so that he could no. save him because he was really, really terrible at English. Um, and yet there's something so delightful about his, about his delivery. It's so honest. He's my favorite thing in the entire movie is that. He so, reminds me of, you know how David Lynch often likes to cast like naif people? He, um, like Andy in Twin Peaks, the sheriff's deputy, was like a driver. And the guy could not act to save his life and was, I kind of loved him because he had this awkwardness that was completely honest and, and completely charming. Yeah, I, I mean, one of one of my other again, I'm going to just list all these favorite things of this movie. But the thing I love about the about the scenes where um where where they send Fezzik to kill the Man in Black, is um is that Vizzini tells him to throw to get a rock, hide behind the hide behind the boulder and throw the rock at his head and kill him. And and he said, my way is not very sportsmanlike. That's one, which way is my way? That's not very sportsmanlike. And 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 again, this movie does such an amazing job of. Of taking your essentially what are supposed to be your bad guys, and by the time they get the, to the point where where um, they're going to perpetrate their their supposedly evil acts, you're on their side, and you hope that they don't get killed by the the, the man in black. And so, obviously, the man in black does his does his uh, his best on the uh, you know as God intended. I think they say where it's uh, you know fists against fists, which is slightly unfair for the man in black. But he manages Wait, to. You, you mean you put down your rock and I put down my sword and we try to kill each other like civilized people? Yes, <laughs> that's right. That's sportsmanlike, not 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 like throwing a rock at his head. I could have hit you, you know. So of course, no one loves Vizzini. There's no, no love for Vizzini. No, no. So I love, so so I love Vizzini. Vizzini. So now we we get to it. So now it is down to you 
and it is down to me. They meet Vizzini meets the man in black with Buttercup tied up, and there's a, a battle of wits, which he accepts to the death. That's right. And um, so Wallace Shawn as Vizzini, again inconceivable. The one of the most quoted things from this movie, and such a funny part. You know, he he's in it in the first third, and then he's dead. But um, you know, such a just. I laugh the entire time he's on the screen. Well, he captures the screen. Anytime he's on it, it's just eyes there. Oh, yeah. He's looking around. He's got his – he's gesturing. I mean, he, that, there's a lot going on because he obviously thinks he is a genius. You know, am, Socrates, Plato, amateurs, morons. 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 I just – I love that I'm just looking at the, the transcript of that, of the Battle of the Wits, which is hilarious because, of course, he spends the entire time, like, you know, essentially stalling. That's you know, right. trying to make all these conclusions. So you've decided then, then. Not hardly. <laughs> yeah. You're just stalling now. You'd like to think that, wouldn't you? <laughs> um, but then he gets, you know, basically, what does it all come down to? He switches the classes, right? Hey, look over there. Yeah, which is smart, yeah, right? I mean, that's 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 actually probably the right gambit if they haven't poisoned both cups with Iocane. And of course, and of course, then we learn that the the man in black not only you know is smart enough to you know good enough at sword fighting to beat Inigo Montoya and sort of clever enough and resilient enough to beat Fezig, but he is also far far smarter because in, you know he went into this game knowing there was no way he could lose. It's a brilliant strategy. I thought when uh, Call Ford, Call Ford, 25 years, to Sherlock on BBC, discussed, mm. as heard on a previous episode of The Incomparable, and um, we uh, were talking about the uh, cyanide capsule, or whatever capsule uh, episode it was. The first, uh, first one, one, yeah. Yes, and it was exactly this scene, and I actually thought that the resolution of that would be that the... Uh, Spoiler horn cab driver was uh, had made himself immune to some poison or mostly immune to some yeah. poison. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It seemed like the logical outcome, and then it was not. That that even that leads up to the the battle of wits also leads up to one of my favorite scenes, which is uh, when the prince is trying to track them down. And so we've been told that this iocane powder, which he used to poison it, is is odorless and tasteless, and you know totally in- invisible. And so there's a scene where the prince comes up, you know, look, picks up the little vial, sniffs it, and goes, Iocane powder. <laughs> Which I, I love. It's a great scene. Why? I don't know, because he's such a buffoon in, like, in every other way, right? But, but he clearly... can sense Iocane powder. Just but by... there's something... Well, it's he's... what he does not smell. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Is Iocane yeah. powder. Mm. But that, that's, that's the same scene where he, where he says that if this doesn't go well, he will be most put out. The, the book has much more about him being – I mean, the, it's mentioned in the movie. I realize the first time you see the prince really doing anything, he's tracking, but there's no explanation of it. He gets down, he looks at some footsteps, and he deduces the entire story from it, which is a great tell. There was the a book, battle. What's that? Oh, yes. Yeah, exactly. there, was, there, was, there was a battle. And the, but in the in the book, it's much more overt that really the guy only lives for hunting and fighting, and the reason he wants a war with uh, Gilder is because he wants to do some more you know, fighting. Hunting and fighting. Like, but... Yeah. Right. So um, Wesley and Buttercup are, are reunited, and he tells a story about the Dread Pirate Roberts, and um, and then uh, they go down a hill, and uh, and then the movie shifts to a completely different location that's not in any way related to anything we've seen before. Hey, is there a Dogma '95 issue here? And I throw, I'm just throwing that out there. That is the, the first time those two things have bah? ever been mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> Princess Bride and Dogma '95. Well, let me ask you this. 
<laughs> you would think so. You know that you know that uh, Lars von Trier and his ilk, right? Dogma, a continuity of sort of form and space without flashbacks. So we have the framing mechanism, which violates that. But I was thinking, and I saw thought this again rewatching the movie, that the Dread Pirate Roberts would have been a great little action scene, right? It would have been that. Well, I was captured by the Dread Pilot Roberts, and in the book, I think it's more of a, a narrative. It's not him telling it. It's a little more of a narrative description. Although I'm hazy on that, and and yet to preserve uh, to preserve that continuity of of space. He didn't want to break out flashbacks of that. Flashbacks within flashbacks. Or within, exactly. There yeah. are no flashbacks. There's the framing mechanism and there's the action of the movie which is continuous. Yeah, there's a dream sequence, there are dream sequences there's... though that are cheating dream sequences. So I don't think you're, I can buy right. that. Yeah, but that I... is outside it. But I also but think it... Wesley telling the story of so his good. time as the cabin boy establishes a lot about his character too. Absolutely. I mean he's he's smart and he's resilient and he just kind of goes with it. I'll probably kill you in the morning. Good yeah. work. Sleep well. I'll most likely kill you in the morning. He just delivers that so nonchalantly that it's perfect. Murdered it's... by pirates is good. Yeah, exactly. Well, and I love that he, he tells the whole story, right, of the inheritance of the, the mantle of the Dread Pirate Roberts. My name is Ryan. Yeah, it, it, I love that the, you know, my, my name's Ryan. I inherited the ship from the previous Dread Pirate Roberts. And he got it from a guy named Cummerbund. Like, it's just... <laughs> The real Roberts has been retired 15 years and living like a king in Patagonia. No, it's just there's something lovely about that whole thing. And I think you're right. It does show uh, it shows us a depth to Wesley that we don't get from him early on when he's just, you know, the nameless. Yeah, he's the he's the farm boy. Right. You know, and so I don't know. It's I, I love him telling the story. And part of that is, again, Carrie Elwes's charisma. In, in relating the story. Well, and the tension is, the tension between them there is actually really nice where where he feels that she has betrayed him because he assumes that her getting married is because she's moved on from their true love, which is not which is not the case really because she doesn't like the prince but she's agreed to marry him because what else are you going to do? Uh, Kill yourself. Yeah, well, exactly. Then won't that be nice? So so um, I like that that give and take, and and she's kind of mad because who is this guy? And she, he's making light of of her true love, and he's angry at her because she's um, you know not holding up her side of the deal of true love. And I and I and then of course she figures it out. But it, it's a really nice little bit of tension between them for that one moment. So and then they go into the fire swamp, and there are giant rats and people in giant rat costumes. I never understood why that I, I would say that one of the false elements in the book is the rodent's unusual size. I feel like he was trying to get at something with that, and I don't know what it was. Like it was a parody of something I didn't understand he was parodying. Well, I, I think the cliffs of insanity are the first time he does that. He, he something is just so ridiculously named, you know, kind of right. hyperbolically named. And I think for Cliss of Insanity, it works. For R-O-U-S's, I don't think it does. Hmm. Oh, I love the R-O-U-S's, though. It's one of the great moments of, of physical slapstick. It's funny, but it doesn't feel like it's from the universe. It doesn't feel like it's from the story. The people who named the Cliffs of Insanity wouldn't call them rodents of unusual size. Yeah, but I think that's part of what the whole thing. It's, it's kind of all a pastiche, right? It's all not quite real or or worlds that aren't what don't quite line up i feel like okay. getting you don't get like a clear idea like even though you know sort of the history about florin and gilder and whatever but you still don't i feel it feels all disjointed like a jigsaw piece missing a few puzzles but that's actually kind of what i love about it is that there are all these little hooks in and you makes you wonder where did that come from or how is this what is this world that we're in here or where you know is it patched together from all these sources well, I, I think he had a whole bunch of tropes he wanted to use. I mean, he he just filled the bag with 
every kind of cliche from fantasy and adventure stories. So we have a we have a scary swamp with fire and monsters and crazy. Well, it's bringing it back to the bedtime story. It's all about you know, when when you're sitting with your children and you're making things up, you're gonna go all the different places from and pull from different types of stories. Right. And it doesn't doesn't necessarily need to fit together. After I first saw this movie, um, I ended up I think taping it when it was on TV. And um, and that was the version that I saw for a long time, and I've still got that version embedded in my head a little bit. And one of the things that, to this day, I notice when I watch the DVD now is that the um, the fire swamp scene is where they cut it for time, mm-hmm. and and that fire swamp scene is in the is in the cut version, but it is um, it is uh, much shortened. And I gotta say, I understand why because the movie kind of grinds to a halt. It is a transitional phase when they're in the swamp before they start sort of the next act. And you know, it, it, there, there's you know the, all the pauses, and then there's the, the they go underneath and the rodent walks by, which they just risky don't. moment, yeah. risky moment in a film to have both everyone off screen for a moment. I remember seeing, I remember that in the original film, and when rewatching it, I was thought. This is great. It's like there is nobody on screen for a few seconds while the tension builds. It was brilliant. Well, and you expect the hand to emerge, right, from the quicksand. What you don't expect is that a giant kind of Muppet rat will slowly amble across the screen, <laughs> exit. Then it'll be quiet for a while. And then the hand finally But, I, comes but how many of us are super, super happy that, you know, they didn't go back in a 25th anniversary edition and replace it with a CGI mm. ROUS? Oh, well, sure. <laughs> With a lightsaber. So I'm just saying I understand why when they cut the movie for time, that's what they chose to cut out. No, I mean, it's and it's also the one the one scene, especially when the prince catches up to him. Where I remember the first time I ever saw it, coincidentally, when I was sick on a beta player. But um, You were sick on a beta player? I was sick and I watched yeah. it on a beta player. Beta Thank made you. a lot of people sick. Yes, <laughs> as I've heard. Uh, no, but it's it's the one scene where once Wesley has kind of revealed, oh, I'm not actually Dread Pirate Roberts, all of a sudden... Hey, he's not quite so badass anymore, and gets taken pretty much without a fight. And I remember at that point, I'm just kind of like, "Wait, what's going on?" But he was just—he was so smart, and now he's. That's this the, is just. This is one of those those solder points where where they've taken they've taken Act One, and now it's like, all right, fire swamp. <laughs> now we got to recalibrate, and that's the second whole movement of this movie, which is he's trapped, and they got, and then he's dead, and they got to rescue him, and she's you know waiting for the fastest ships to 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 bring back word of him. Um, which is, you know, it's the, I would argue maybe the weakest of the three kind of sections of the movie. I, I, and there's some, this is where it gets a little, a little Mel Brooksy to me, not just with a bit of despair. Yeah, exactly. <coughs> oh, sorry. Uh, uh, don't even think about trying to escape. Yeah, yeah. We've got That's the we've got thing. the pit of despair, and we've got the guy down there who's right out of a Mel Brooks movie. And I always thought that was Robbie Coltrane. The first time I saw it, I'm like, it's Robbie Coltrane. Oh no, it's not. No, He's a, good guy. a little too good early. Guy. And the 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 tree with the door in it. Mm. Where and... is that secret note? Mm. Yeah, it's just it's it's a funny little part of the movie, and and it's necessary. But um, you know, the torture equipment though, I've I've actually had that done to me. <laughs> <laughs> You've had years of your life sucked off. I've gone to an acupuncturist. Yeah, I've gone to an acupuncturist, and they've put a million little glass cups on my back and lit fires on top of them to suck the air out. It feels great, but it looks remarkably like what Glenn, I, I hate Elvis. to tell you, that wasn't an it's acupuncturist. A joke. <laughs> what? Oh, what? It does explain the welts, though. Mm. That's well, yeah. You, you you pull the little lever, and the water comes out. And my wife thought I'd been beaten with oranges. I do. I do actually <laughs> like that. Um. I like that scene where um, they crank up the the, and and even Count Rugen says no, not one hundred or whatever it is. Fifty. 
Yeah, and they and they um and he his scream can be heard throughout the kingdom. I, I like that. The the, the the man in black is feeling it now. The, 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 that pit of despair. And uh, yet Buttercup cannot hear it. No, no. So she's wearing her headphones. So, but it does it after they after they kill uh, the kill the kill the man in black. There's a great interlude with um, Fred Savage where he's very upset because you know it can't be. And that, and there's a really nice bit of narrative uh, twist in there where where um, Peter Falk says uh, nothing happens to 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 uh, the prince. He 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 lives. It's like what are you? Oh, geez, Grandpa, what are you doing? Why are you telling me this story? That is that is a great that is a great scene because it's that defying of. All of the rules, you know, sometimes oh, yeah. bad people get away, mm-hmm. right? And so it's that whole defiant, breaking all the rules of the fairy tale at that point. Like you know, you the kill the hero and you, you know, you have the, the bad guy sort of waltzes and it's great. It, I love that. It's the that. same um, same with the Screaming Eels where he says uh, she doesn't die at this time. She doesn't get eaten by the eels. Right? <laughs> so it's, it's, let's diffuse, I just say because you looked a little worried. All tension, <laughs> diffuse all that tension. We're not going to, don't worry about it. So they, they, they reveal that up front, which is, which is uh, really funny. And then, so then he's dead. And um, we get the the classic, mostly dead. the classic. Mostly he's, dead. But it turns out he's only mostly dead. We and we get the the scenes with, with uh, Fezzik and Inigo taking the Men in Black after after Inigo is is um is has water poured over him by by Fezzik because he's part of the Brute Squad. You are the Brute he Squad. Is the, he is the Brute Squad. Uh, they, I mean, what a great another great example of Carrie Elwes as a physical actor is. I love that whole bits with him. You know. Where he can't walk basically because he's just getting his strength back, and he flops his head from yes. side to side. Yeah. Well, what a great! They, I mean, he needs to look fantastic. over the parapet, and they slide him up, and his head completely loosely lulls. slides up <laughs> over the top so he can see it. And I'm like, that should be physically impossible. It's it's like defend, but it, it's it's hilarious. It's great to watch, and that whole scene where he's trying to come up with a plan. If only we had a Holocaust cloak. Like, what why wasn't that? Why wasn't that listed among the things that we had? Except for the wheelbarrow. Why was wheelbarrow listed among our resources? The, uh, the albino had a wheelbarrow, didn't he? I'm not still. I'm still not really clear on how wheeling Andre the Giant in a wheelbarrow with a big cloak and and, and lighting him on fire is the. It was the reputation of the Dread Pirate Roberts. Yeah. I'm the Dread Pirate Roberts. I know. He wasn't tall enough. You mean he wasn't tall enough by himself. Was the... <laughs> yeah, that's right. Thunder <laughs> the Giant, not giant enough. Not quite imposed. So, so they get into the they, – they, with the use of uh, what gate key? Oh, you mean this gate key. They get into <laughs> the – Tear his arms off. <laughs> they get, Wait, I forgot now. They, they, they get into the castle. <laughs> Um, and then we have our, you know, the, that's all part of this last act, which is the the, the rescue of of, of oh. Buttercup. And and you're right, um, Carrie Elwes is fantastic because throughout this, he's holding on to suits of armor and laying on a bed completely flat, and is he's our hero, and he's completely incapable of doing any, anything. He's as weak as a kitten throughout. It's a little Benny Hill at that moment too. People are English bedroom farce. It's like people are running down hallways. People come by. People are stabbed. Doors open and shut. People are suddenly where they shouldn't be in beds. Like the Buttercup throws herself on Gary Elwes and Gently. and the black. The, and she says, "What's Wesley? What's the matter?" Oh, I actually love um, when when Count Rugen. So so uh, Inigo gives his speech and Count Rugen runs away, which is hilarious. Um, what I really love and, and, and didn't notice for a while about that scene, but now I've seen it so many times I've noticed everything, um, is, is I love Mandy Patinkin's panic when Count Rugen runs away and he can't go after him because the door is closed. He, he, and there's a scene where he's, he's smashing against the door yeah. and he's shouting. And, and it is so 
well played. He's shouting, Fezzik, Fezzik, and he's desperate for Fezzik to come and, uh, like he does because he's a giant, knock down the door because this is his moment and and he, the guy is getting away. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, again, a little bit of that emotional realism injected in this ridiculous scene that's happening. Oh, it's a great, that's also a great moment. I also love the, the final showdown between Wesley and, and Humperdinck, with, both because I think they both get, uh, both both uh, Harry Elwes and Chris Sarandon have that have such a great presence in that scene where, you know, Humperdinck, to the death, no, to the pain. And he sort of has that pause. <laughs> I'm not quite familiar with that phrase, you know? <laughs> Let me explain it to you. you. And that's where the pig comes in. Well, he's just, you warthog. Yeah, yeah, he's, going, he's going. I'll use small words so that you'll understand. <laughs> he's going all in because he knows that he can't. You know, he doesn't have any strength or at least not enough strength he's to blaving. do more than just lift his arm. So he's got he's a bla- he's, he's got a blave. He's blaving. He's That's his right. way through it. That's right. So he blaves all the way up to that point where he can do his one physical move. Drop your sword. Drop your sword. And it's great. And then he lives, of course, because we've been told he he lives. That's not the point. The point is that is that he's humiliated. Well, yeah, that's right. And that Wesley and 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 Buttercup uh, go off together on their on Wait, their did white you say, horses. Did you say butter, Buttercup? 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 That's the sequel to RoboCop. Robo- <laughs> no, it's the sequel to RoboCup. <laughs> Jeez, uh, get it right. No, Wesley and Buttercup sorry. go off. Buttercup, 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 Buttercup. <laughs> there. Buttercup. Wesley and Buttercup go off together on four white horses that seem to have been found somewhere in the stables by Andre the Giant Fezzik. Again. I found these white horses. That's right. I think there are four of us if we find a but lady. I, Hello, uh, lady. <laughs> that's how fairy tales work is if you need to resolve the story, of course there are horses. Of course there, there are. And why would you how would you end the story anyway other than riding them riding off into the sunrise in this case on four white horses? How Flying you, dragons. How, yeah. Oh. <laughs> I have to say one of the ways that this this uh, movie has gotten into my head is that in reading the George R R Martin fantasy series uh, <laughs> that starts with a Game of Thrones, I actually can't picture um, a really nefarious character, Jamie Lannister, the sort of stuff show. Oh, yes. I can't I, – I've cast Chris Sarandon as Jamie Lannister. Oh, but he's – no, but uh, – I'm no, sorry. That's, a pod, that's for another no, no, but, podcast, but, I, but it's kind of ridiculous. It is kind of ridiculous, and yet <laughs> – Because that guy's really evil. He is really evil, but at the same time – well, let's just say it's the greatest role Chris Sarandon has never played. Yeah, Chris Sarandon <laughs> is the Eric Roberts of his particular – Yes, that's right, because his sister, his sister is really famous. But no, I just I, because when I started reading those books, I thought, well, this is a this is a real kind of stuffed shirt prince. And the problem is he's not, and I, it's gotten me into trouble. Where again, Chris Sarandon is being inhabited by a much better actor, I suppose, in my in my mind, in the old Skull Cinema. While we're playing the George R. R. Martin, <laughs> I'm sure it'll when the guy from New Amsterdam plays him in the um, in the TV HBO. series on HBO, then I won't. That'll that'll wipe it from that, your memory. That, maybe. That'll get, that'll or you'll or maybe you'll be sitting there saying, "Why didn't they cast Chris Sarandon? <laughs> he would have been perfect twenty have, years ago." We'll have to do a podcast in April when the show comes out. Oh, you think? Yeah. Do you have, um, do you have THX installed in your Skull Cinema? Because I really should work on an upgrade. No, I only have that in my real cinema. My Skull. That's a stereo. My, I don't even have Dolby Five One inside your head. Well, you know, I can. I, I my two ears are perfectly good at listening to Five Point One. So why wouldn't I just make it in my head too? I don't have 5.1 ears, Glenn. Not yet. <laughs> Not yet, but maybe soon. Will be the future soon. Um, what else do I want to talk about here? I, I think, so Rob Reiner um, directed this movie, TV's Meathead, by the way. 
Um, Back when he directed good movies. Yes. 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 So, so here's the funny thing. This is one in a string of movies. There was a point when Rob Reiner had directed something like six or seven movies in a row, all of which were good movies. Beautiful story. Like Stand By Me, mm-hmm. this is This is Spinal Tap. Followed right. by The Sure Thing, followed by oh, um, Stand By Me, followed by The Princess Bride, followed by When Harry Met Sally, followed by Misery, followed by A Few Good Men. Wow. I think that was the ch- I think that that's the chain. I might be missing one in there. It's enough for any one life, I think. Well, and that's yeah. good because he, that was yeah. it. <laughs> and then it just went. <laughs> yeah. But, and then he made North. But um, <laughs> but it, and it's also I should I should mention we have Billy Crystal who uh, went on to be the leading man in his next movie when Harry met Sally and also appeared in a uh, a small cameo in This Is Spinal Tap and Christopher Guest from This Is Spinal Tap and who's gone to make on all these other mockumentaries is of course Count Rug and the Six Fingered Man so there are little bits of of the of the team from these other movies of Rob Reiner's who, who've dropped into The Princess Bride. But what a, what a run that, that was for him and some really different kinds of movies. I mean, that's so many different genres he did. And yeah, and then that was it because he hasn't made a good movie since. It's the, same, it's the same with William Goldman, who's had an amazing writing career just across a whole bunch of different genres. Uh, just just pick, cherry picking here: Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Stepford Wives, Marathon Man, Bridge Too Far, Misery, Which? Maverick, The Ghost in the Darkness. They're not all terrific movies. So he, he he so screenwriter of Misery. That's interesting. So he reteamed with uh, Rob Reiner. Goldman Goldman didn't he write that terrible book about John Lennon? Don't think so. No. He wrote he wrote a nonfiction book called Adventures in the Screen Trade that's supposed to be terrific, huh. but I haven't read it. Yeah, that's mm. that is. I've not read it, but it's been highly recommended to me as well. But I mean, the guy who wrote Princess Bride, the book and the screenplay, also wrote Marathon Man, the book and the screenplay, and all the pre- yeah. all the president's right. men. Too. I, I, I don't wow. see how one guy masters those two genres, just just so wildly diverse and both such high quality. Was he also an actor on a '70s sitcom? Because that would give him the trifecta. <laughs> <laughs> no, you'd need Ron Howard for that. Yeah. Right? yeah, we you know we did we skipped over Miracle Max in our chronological discussion yeah. of the film. We talked about him on intentionally. And off, but... We briefly touched mm-hmm. on on him. It's one scene. It's a memorable scene, although it's true. But to believe, we all quote to believe, which means to bluff. Liar, liar, liar! Mm-hmm. Because he just doesn't. Miracle Max is very grumpy because he got fired by Prince Humperdinck. You know, you talk about the center part of the movie where things get kind of slapsticky, and Miracle Max and and Billy Crystal and Carol Kane just they they epitomize that for me. They, it just didn't yes. fit in with the rest of the movie. It's the That's Mel Brooks true. portion of the movie. Yeah. And the and the and the albino and the the torture machine and all of that and although it's all in the book is the funny part yeah. it's like it, it, I mean it was off, it was accurately converted to the screen to something a bit funnier and much much briefer than in the book. But everybody everybody remembers it right everybody remembers yeah, Billy sure. Crystal and he's in that movie for for what three minutes. Well, and, and in some ways you can argue it works because it doesn't work. I mean, be, again, I come back to that idea of the okay. whole. Well, because because of everything, every, nothing fits in this movie. It feels like to me, and yet that that is kind of the one thing they have. In, it all has in common, is that it's all drawn from all these these places. It's all this patchwork quilt, and yet it, it's something where each individual piece might not seem like it works, but for some reason, when they come together, it it creates something larger than than the sum of its parts. Hmm. Okay, Dan. So what you're saying really? is really no you disagree what, what you're saying is that it because it doesn't fit that's why it fits Well they needed a Deus Ex <laughs> Machina in there and so they pull out Billy Crystal I mean it was even in the book too it's like 
<laughs> you're you're hopeless. The marriage is about to happen. Your main character is dead, and Goldman pulls out this completely you know ridiculous thing. There's always a wizard, so he makes the wizard you know. As long as you're being ridiculous, go full on ridiculous. Yeah. Right. I mean, of course, the thing is, he was already a screenwriter at that point. So the question is, how much of the book was written with the notion that he may have had Billy Crystal in mind, for all we know, for that point, because um, it, it's not in 1974. Yeah. Oh, was that old? Yeah. yeah. Billy Crystal wasn't oh. even on soap then. My goodness. Okay. Then I withdraw. I can kind of... I'll edit that out. Just kidding. Yes, please please (laughs) eliminate all inconvenient wrong opinions from this podcast. I can kind of see it, though. I mean, the beauty of the movie being so many different things is that it can appeal to so many different people as well. So I can see that, in a way, being towards the more, not lowbrow humor set, because it's not really lowbrow humor, but the Mel Brooks part of the audience who wants, who want those quotes to say at their, you know, drunken parties. At least there's no farting. This is true. (laughs) Or or crotch shots. Small miracles. See, have you, I don't know if my tone gave, gave this away, but I'm not a big Mel Brooks fan. Actually, uh, so. It depends on the era. I mean, he made some. The producers is one and... of the funniest movies ever made, but I could really stand to right. Not Blazing ever Saddles, see Blazing Sandals. Yeah, no. we could spend an hour on Blazing Saddles. No. A great film. Blazing Saddles. I mean, this is we talk about TV editing. There are so many films from the eighties, seventies, and eighties that were ruined for us who grew up in the eighties and nineties because we saw them on television. They were butchered to the point of unrecognizability. So I didn't understand how funny Blazing Saddles was until I saw it unedited again. I think the Blazing Saddles episode will be one of those great episodes where Dan Morin is the host. Because oh. I'm not talking about I, – I, I don't need that movie to waste any more of my life. <laughs> I saw the I saw the what? campfire scene on TV where they just damped the sound down to zero. It made no sense whatsoever. <laughs> Mystifying. Yes. There is that, but Slim Pickens. Slim Pickens lived, uh, lived in the town where I grew up. Ye- Andre the Giant was Yeehaw. taken to school by – uh, Samuel Beckett. Samuel Beckett. I have Fred yeah. Savage in my closet. <laughs> <laughs> that's where he's been. Uh, that's how this game works. Actually, oh. Peter Falk is still alive or no? Yes. Because mm-hmm. what I want is is like Funny or Die to get Fred Savage and Peter Falk together to re-record oh, their God. scenes now. <laughs> Please suggest that. Would that would be to awesome. Them. William Goldman's still alive. He no, right. They scene, would they it? would re-record the scene except Peter Falk would be reading something horrible to him. <laughs> well, they. they they could just cut it straight into the movie as it is. It's it's part of the criterion is they've re-recorded just those scenes to update them. That's the only dated part of the movie. Peter Falk is in the nursing home and Fred Savage is reading the story to <laughs> oh, him. That's and sad. it's touching. Aww. Dear Penthouse. That makes me sad. That's that's like the ending of Big Fish. Captain uh, Bringdown, <laughs> making everybody sad at the end of the podcast about the happy movie that everyone loves. Okay, I want to go around the, the room. And ask everybody for, since this is the most quotable movie in the universe, my question to you, since this movie is so incredibly quotable, and this is the task you must perform for me, you must tell me your favorite, bar none, single favorite line from The Princess Bride. I know. It's hard. It's difficult. Ponder. Dan? I get to go first. You don't have to. Who would like to go no, first? No, I got it. I got it. I got it. I got All right. it. All right. My, my, it's, it's an Inigo, another Inigo quote. Yep. Which I've used in other places. Let me explain. No, there's too much. Let me sum up. Excellent. One of my favorites. I use that one all the time. Glenn? I've already said it, but I will repeat it. You keep using that word. 
I do not think it means what you think it means. Greg? Uh, I'm classic Inugo. Uh, just because when we were in college, we left this on our answering machine, which is, my name is Inugo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to leave a message. <laughs> <laughs> Ren? I'm going to break the Inigo Montoya streak, but as you wish. Aww. Thump, 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 thump. Well, um, I want to thank my guests for talking about The Princess Bride. My, uh, my guests are, are Serenity Caldwell, Greg Noss, Glenn Fleischman, and Dan Morin. Until next time on The Incomparable, have fun storming the castle! Okay, on Earth, there may be a more quotable movie on the planet Zixel 7, where movies are um, performed with only the sense of smell. And to quote them, it's very hard because oh, you have to quote Have you ever smell. been at a party where everybody's passing pheromones? Oh, sorry. All of my parties. Uh, <laughs> Mel Brooks is very popular on Zixel 7. Jason, I've, I've always thought of you as particularly musky. Thank, thank you, Greg. I mean Edmund Musky. That's I work I worked I work hard on that. I, I have Edmund Muskie in my closet. <laughs>